Hello, and welcome to Investigative Postcast, a podcast program from Investigative Post. I'm Jim Heaney, editor of Investigative Post, a nonprofit investigative reporting center based here in Buffalo. In this week's episode, I talked to veteran journalist and educator Lee Coppola, a prominent investigative reporter in the Buffalo market from the 1970s into the 1990s, and later dean of the School of Journalism at St. Bonaventure University. Welcome to our podcast, Lee. It's nice to be here. Uh, you were uh, you were the initial president of the board of Investigative Post when we launched back in 2012. I thought I'd share that with our listeners. And in this coming Wednesday, uh, we're going to honor you with a Distinguished Service Award for your contributions to journalism as both a reporter and an educator. And you've really worn a lot of different hats in your career. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you started in newspapers, you moved on to TV, you got a law degree and was a federal prosecutor for a while and then you ended up at the old alma mater, St. Bonaventure. So Tell me a little bit about that uh, about that journey, and I'm particularly interested as somebody who, like you, went from print to to TV. Um, you know, you did it, you know, years ago when nobody was doing it. Not that a whole lot of people do it now, but I, I'm I'm interested in what what got you to make that switch. But let let's go back to the beginning. It's 1962, and you're uh, what a junior or senior at St. Bonaventure. Yeah, actually, finishing my sophomore year at St. Bonaventure. Okay. Um, and and uh, worked in the summer for the Associated Press Wire Service, which was housed at the Buffalo Evening News uh, at, uh, I think it was 218 Main Street, right in the shadow of what is now the uh, one Seneca Tower. Um, and that's basically when I started. And I worked for the Associated Press uh, in the summer of my uh, sophomore year and my junior year. And after I graduated, I worked for the Associated Press until I went into the Army, I had a ROTC commitment, had to serve two years of active duty while the Vietnam War heated up. Fortunately, I did not get uh, assigned to Vietnam, but I was assigned to a place called White Sands Missile Range, New Mexico, and I was the editor of the Post newspaper for two years, which fit right into what uh, exactly was my areas of expertise. Um, and when I left the Army, uh, the Associated Press wanted to hire me, and the Buffalo Evening News wanted to hire me, and I chose to go with the Buffalo Evening News. So I started with the news in 1967. Now you uh, you you did uh, you did a lot of investigative reporting there, and you won some pretty prestigious awards. What what was the best story you did during your time? You were at the news what 16 years? Uh, 16 years at the news. I I have to say probably the one that gave me. Uh, the most satisfaction was uh, a, a series of stories uh, about how the government took uh, a man's children away because the children were living with their stepfather, who was a government informant. And uh, I pursued that story, and it uh, turned into somebody writing a book about it and then somebody writing a, doing a movie about it that was called mm -hmm. Hide in Plain Sight. And I think that was the most satisfying thing because eventually the government changed the way it brought people under protection of the government because of those stories. All right. And so while you were uh, at the news, you started going to law school, right? I did, right. Uh, I'd been at the news like, uh, I would say, 
Well, I went to law school, and I started in 67 at the News, and I went to law school in 78. Um, so 11 years into my tenure at the News, I went to law school, and fortunately the paper was willing to allow me to work a schedule as long as I came up with uh, enterprise stories, work a schedule that uh, fit in with my classes at the UB Law School because UB Law did not have any night school, so I had to go during the day. As much you, were, as you were a busy guy then. <laughs> I was a very busy guy, believe me. <laughs> now, you, you, now, what prompted you to make the move into TV? Well, I, what prompted me was uh, I was uh, I got a phone call one day from the news director at Channel Seven, a guy by the name of Steve Ridge, um, their investigative reporter, who was uh, formerly a Courier Express reporter by the name of John Pauley had left and taken a job with a CBS affiliate in Los Angeles, and he was looking for a new troubleshooter. So he called me on the phone. I was at the news, and he said, uh, you know, he introduced himself, and he said, uh, uh, what do you think of television news? And I said, I think it sucks. <laughs> he said, uh, yeah. well, I can imagine that sucks? answer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I watch television news with my wife every night, and I yell at the television because they got the graphics spelled wrong, they got this fact wrong, they got that fact wrong because I was covering the same stories. Mm -hmm. And he said something that changed uh, really my thinking. He said, does anybody ever answer you? And I said, no. He said, well, you know, if you were on the inside, you might make a difference. And boy, I thought about that and I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And so you made that switch in, in what I year? I made that switch. Uh, 1983, I went to Channel 7 as the troubleshooter. Uh, just as I was finishing law school, I was in my last year of law school. Uh, in fact, I had written into my contract, because I had never had a personal services contract before, I had written into my contract that Channel 7 would give me six weeks off in the summer to study for the bar exam. Okay. Now, so what I got was... paid to study for the bar exam. There you go. There you go. Uh, what, uh, what, was the biggest, uh, what was the biggest transition going from print to TV? Uh, recognizing that in order to have an effective story on television, you needed pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. My first my first week at Channel Seven, uh, the venerable Irv Weinstein took me aside. I was a kid then, and he said, "Look at kid, in this business, if you haven't got pictures, you haven't got shit." And uh, it, it made me think about stories that I had to have to revolve around pictures. Uh, you know, and and I tried to. In my career in television, I tried to have the pictures that caught the person with his hand or her hand in the cookie jar, mm -hmm. because those were the kind of pictures that people said, wow, and holy cow, and look at that. And uh, so that's really what I try to base my stories on. Of course, I wasn't always successful, but at least I tried. Yeah. Now, I uh, let's compare notes for a minute. I, I found... I find television to actually be much harder to do than print because of of all the logistics of uh, as you just mentioned mm -hmm. getting getting mm -hmm. getting the visual mm -hmm. the mechanics the whole mecha I mean it's it's not like you're sitting at your desk and you're interviewing somebody on the phone and you're uh, taking notes exactly and you get right. done and that's you write it up and boom you're done there's right. you're you're part of a team effort and there's a lot more moving parts and it it's just much well, more labor intensive and not only that, the subjects you're interviewing are more than uh, often uh, reluctant to go on television. Yeah. And you had yeah. to convince them that, listen, the, the, the camera is my notebook. 
I'm taking notes as we talk, but the camera is my notebook when I'm a television reporter. But I'll tell you how many people refuse. Oh, I'll talk to you on the phone, but I'm not going on television. Yeah, well, that, so, that's still, uh, that still yeah. holds true. Still holds yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Now, and you that, want, you that, want, that made it difficult. You went from seven to four. What, what was behind that move? Well, the move was that the news director that came in from Chan for Channel 7, Jerry Fidel, uh, did not renew my contract. Um, and the reason he did not is because he had a friend at the radio station, and I think it was 5550, who uh, he wanted to give my job to. So when my contract came up, he, didn't, he did not uh, renew my contract. Uh, what he did not know is that I had a side letter in my contract that said if Channel 7 did not renew my contract, Channel 7 <coughs> waived what was then called the Restrictive Covenant. Uh, the restrictive covenant would have uh, impeded me from working in the Buffalo television market for six months uh, to a year. Uh, but Fidel did not know that there was a side letter. So the day my contract uh, ended at Channel 7, the next day I went to work at Channel 4. I guess your law degree served you uh, well before it you sure ever, did. <laughs> before you ever did put the shingle well. up. All right, now, now you, uh, you worked at 4, and then you made a, a big career move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was uh, interviewing the then U.S. Attorney Dennis Vacco one day, and he said uh, on a story, and he said, uh, "You've got a law degree, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "How'd you like to come to work for me?" Now, you know, I had never really thought about practicing law. I went to law school because I wanted to go to law school, uh, but I never thought about practicing. And I gave it some thought and said, you know. I don't want to be 85 or 90, I uh, hope I live that long, and be wheeled into the emergency room under the fluorescent lights and say to myself, I wonder if I ever, I ever could have been a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why not take a job at the biggest law firm in the United States right off the yeah. bat? And that's what I did. And you prosecuted uh, drug dealers, right? For five years, I prosecuted drug dealers, and it was a lot of fun. All right. Then and a lot you... of satisfaction. Then, then you made yet another career move. Uh, <laughs> That's you, right. In the story, if I recall uh, what you've told me in the past, you were heading up the search committee for a new dean no, of the school. No, 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 right, no, no that's not on. true at all. No, I, I was not on the search committee. Um, I was on an alumni committee that the then president convened to discuss the future of the journalism program at St. Bonaventure. Okay. And uh, he said that he was going to convert the Department of Journalism into a school of journalism, and he was looking for a dean. So um, they went through a search process, and uh, he offered any of the alums on the alum committee to sit in on the final uh, search committee choices. And I did sit in on uh, three of the final candidates and watch their interviews and ask them questions with the president and the then provost. But none of them took the job, and the president called me uh, one day and said, uh, well, the final candidate turned down the job, uh, and I'm calling to see if you have any ideas on who we could ask to be the dean. And I gave him three or four names that I thought would be wonderful. And he said, well, actually, he said, I've got somebody in mind. And I said, uh, well, who's that? And he said, I'm talking to him. <laughs> and I literally thought he was out of his mind because I had this wonderful job with the federal government with all of its benefits, and I, of course, never been in academia. I didn't know anything about academia. But, you know, um, I had a discussion with my family, and everyone in my immediate family uh, agreed that that's, that's what I should do. In fact, my son said, Dad, weren't you born to be the dean of the School of Journalism at St. Bonaventure? 
Yeah. So how could you not take the job when your kid tells you that? Well, it must have been neat to go home, in effect. It was wonderful. I, one of the things that they say is, you know, you play it forward. And I tell people I didn't play it forward. I took. Because when I went back, I was taking all the stuff that I felt about the place that I had been educated in. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to give back what I had learned in the, in the time since I had graduated. But I was really taking more than I was giving. Yeah. All right, let me let me ask you let me ask you one more thing, uh, and then I want to get into a critique of of of, of the modern day uh, media. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a bit of a uh, I'll call it mobologist. Uh, you've written <laughs> you've written a lot about the mob. What what got you into the mob? And uh, uh, tell me a story. Well, what, what, wait, 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 let's clarify that. What got me into the mob reporting? <laughs> Not got me into the mob. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I well, stand corrected. Well, uh, in one sentence, my name is Coppola, and all four of my grandparents were born in Sicily. Okay. Uh, I grew up on the west side of Buffalo, and some of the people that I grew up with, I went to college, they went to a different kind of school, a burglary school. So uh, I knew what was going on as I was growing up, and I, I had the sources when I became a reporter to find out what was going on then. So mm-hmm. basically that's what got me into reporting on the mob, my understanding of what it was all about. Uh, because I think I was Sicilian, um, and also having the contacts within the mob or on the fringes of the mob to be able to provide me information as a reporter. What was your most memorable mob story? Mm, mm. I guess probably um, it would have to be uncovering the fact that the head of the Labor's Local 210 had started a phony minority company to uh, to get contracts as they were building the rapid transit system in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a tip from somebody I knew. I followed it through, and I found out that the head of the lo- local union uh, had had uh, employed, so to speak, two um, men of color who were, one of them was a custodian in County Hall who was the president of his company and didn't even know where the office was mm-hmm. um, to be the uh, titular uh, hierarchy in the company so that he could get government contracts uh, on the rapid transit system. Okay. All right. Let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the media in 2016. You've been uh, in the biz, so to speak, in and around the biz since the 60s. Um, and let's talk about right. news, newspapers first, and then television. What's uh, what's different and what's the same? Uh, about uh, the newspaper business. Obviously, the business model has collapsed, but in terms of the craft of journalism and practicing the craft, what's uh, what's your take on that? I'm so glad you called it a craft because it is a craft, and um, I think uh, my take on it is that the basics remain the same. You know, good journalism means ferreting out information, uh, making sure that the information is as accurate as a journalist can make it, and then reporting that information, communicating it uh, to the audience that the journalist wants to receive it. Um, and so that, that basically always remains the same. You need to know how to gather information, you need to know how to analyze it, and you need to know how to communicate it. But the what tools are, yeah, well, the tools are dramatically right. different. Well, well, you know, in my days, it was, uh, I, I went out and got a story, I came back to my desk, and I hit my typewriter, and I banged out uh, paper, and uh, 
paper, I mean real paper, and I banged out paper and sent it on to the editor, and he would look at it and then send it on to the copy desk, and they would look at it, and they would pass it down the line to the teletype, uh, uh, the print shop where the linotype operators were, and they would make it into steel, and then they'd print a page. Um, and today it's, okay, you have a computer instead of a typewriter, but you also can't just report the story and wait for the next edition. You have to report the story as I did with the AP. There was a, uh, a motto at AP was deadline every minute because the minute you wrote the story, you put it out over the AP wire service. Mm -hmm. Well, nowadays, where you're working for a newspaper, you really have a deadline every minute because the minute you get the story, you've got to put it on the Internet, on the yeah. web page of the newspaper. Yeah. So consequently, what's different is the pressure on journalists to get the information to the web as quickly as possible. The problem is too often, I think, journalists uh, in their haste to get the stories on the web don't take the necessary steps to make sure their stories are accurate. Um, and, and then again, you know, not only that, you have to take part in, oh, you should have a blog and you should be tweeting and you should be doing all these other things that newspapers want their journalists to do other than just write stories. Yeah. So I think that's the big change in newspapers today. Uh, How about TV? Have to be, with with well, the same TV, thing they don't, with TV? Them, they, they don't even call them reporters anymore. They call them uh, multi-function journalists. Mm -hmm. Because in television, when I started in television, I didn't know how to take pictures. I always had a photographer, a photojournalist I called, come with me on a story because I didn't know how to operate a camera. And I didn't know how to take the tape from the camera and to edit it into a story. But, but he did, and I relied on him or her to do that. Nowadays, uh, the reporters are the ones with the cameras. If you notice on television nowadays, when reporters do stand-ups in the field, they don't move because the camera's on a, on, a, on a tripod, and they can't move because there's no one behind the camera to follow them. Yeah, so it's yeah. different it, business, a yeah. tremendously different business. Yeah, and TV reporters are being asked to do a lot more. Some of them are, some you know, they're still uh, the camera people are still out there with some reporters. I I know I don't know how to operate a camera. I'm a, mm -hmm. I've always got a camera person with me, but uh, mm -hmm. you're right. They're uh, you know the younger reporters in particular all all have to all have to be one one man shows so to speak. Investigative reporting. Well, 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 first of all, let's go back to, to broadcast uh, journalism. Number one, you know, I, I, I laugh when um, uh, coaches and football uh, coaches say, well, we've got to look at the film. Well, number one, there's no more film. Some of them say, I've got to look at the tape. There's no more tape either. <laughs> so everything is done by a computer, and, and the, the broadcast journalist nowadays has to know how to use that computer to edit the stories so that the pictures that he or she took are the best ones to follow the story that he or she is reporting. Mm -hmm. The tools that reporters use, and let's talk about investigative reporting in, in particular. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot more uh, tools available for research purposes. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how has the technology changed uh, investigative reporting, and, and has anything been lost in the process? Well, I think if, if you're weighing the, the, the gains and the losses, I think the gains far outnumber the losses. Number one, the gains are your ability to get information and data so quickly and so fully, quickly uh, and, and, and fully, as I said. And those, that data augments a story. If you could do a story and
and show the public in a graphic exactly what you're trying to report and then follow that up with the words to analyze and give content and context to the graphic that you're presenting. That wasn't possible before. Uh, and if it were possible, it meant you spent hours, say, in the basement of County Hall going through grantor and grantee books and, and deeds, trying to get information on tax rolls and things of that nature. But nowadays, you just go to the computer, and it, there it is. So you take it out, you can analyze it, and you can develop investigative stories based on the information that government agencies are putting out over the Internet. And I think that's a tremendous advantage um, uh, to investigative reporting. Still, investigative reporters have the problem of freedom of information requests and how government agencies and government entities stall or prevent you from getting the information that you think is valuable to your story because they hide. They don't, they don't use the Freedom of Information Act the way it's supposed to be used. They hide behind it instead of helping investigative reporters or journalists in general do their story. Let's not even mention investigative reporters because to me, Every reporter is an investigative reporter because every, every reporter has to gather information and investigate what he or she is gathering. So to me, everybody's an investigative reporter. Some specialize in it, specialize in it like Investigative Post does, and that's admirable. But really, every reporter should be an investigative reporter. And as far as the losses, because it's so easy to get that information, the face-to-face -face interviews, uh, the face-to-face -face contact is lost. Let me give you an example. When I was an investigative reporter and I had to find information at County Hall, I would go down to the records room and I would look through the records. But you know what? When I was down there, I was meeting the people who compiled the records. Mm -hmm. I was meeting the, the, the clerks and I was getting familiar with them. And you know what? There, and occasionally I would get a phone call from one of those clerks saying, uh, Mr. Coppola, did you know this or did you see this? So I had developed a contact uh, because it was a face-to-face -face meeting with the clerks in County Hall or wherever I was doing a story. So yeah. you lose that face-to-face -face contact, and I can t well, you know, sources are what make investigative reporting critical. You need sources who know what's going on to provide you the information. You can do the rest, but they've got to give you the open the door. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a blend of the shoe leather reporting and the and combined with the data and the documents and mm -hmm. and it all uh, it all fits together. All right, well Lee, it's been good talking to you. Uh I look forward to seeing you on the 19th and uh, right. thank you Me thank too. you for your time, sir. Okay, all right, Jim, take care. Tickets for our October 19th gala dinner featuring Margaret Sullivan as keynote speaker can be purchased online at investigativepost.org. That's where you can find our previous podcasts as well. Thanks for listening.